Hello, everybody. Welcome to the New Futurist Podcast. Today, I've got a very special guest. Now, I know he wouldn't think so himself, but his name is Bob Dale. And Bob is a futurist, storyteller, and uh, self-admitted, over-educated individual from the Ozark Mountains of Missouri. Uh, Bob is also a graduate of the Foresight Academy, and he was one of my first students in that program, and he was involved in providing some outstanding feedback, and he's just been a champion uh, for a lot of the work I've done, so I really appreciate Bob. And that is not why I'm having him on here. I'm having Bob on here because Bob has a lot of wisdom, a lot of great insight, and we had a conversation the other day, and just thought, we really need to record this. We need to talk about this a little bit more and uh, and share it with the world. So here we are. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jared. Pleased to be here. Yeah, that's right. And no, I did not tell him he had to say that he was pleased to be here either, for anybody <laughs> who might be wondering. <laughs> so let's start off with what we were talking about the other day. This is what this episode is really focusing around, is the power of storytelling. Now, I know that's a broad topic, but here's what gave me the idea that we should have this conversation. You started to talk to me about something you've been doing, and I believe you said this this is a tradition in your family. You were writing, um, it was like a journal or a story for your children, and your son has picked this up as well. Uh, tell us a little bit about that so I don't butcher this whole thing here, because it was really, it blew my mind when you started telling me this, and I had, you'd never told me that before, and as you were discussing that with me, I thought, that is such, that's awesome, because that is what legacy really is. It's the story you leave behind. It's the impact you leave behind. So can you tell us a little bit about this family tradition that either you started or that you are continuing? Well, it, it's multi-generational, um, Jared. Um, I became an orphan at 69, and uh, when my, my mother died, um, she had been in a nursing facility for the last year of her life. And so being a mama's boy, I called her every night. And being uh, a researcher, I called her with a research question. And um, that led to all kinds of interesting conversations. Uh, for one thing, I asked her uh, in early December how she and dad learned about Pearl Harbor. Mm. And it turned out, that, and this is what blew my mind about it, they found out about Pearl Harbor eight days after it happened. Oh, wow. We live so far back in the mountains that you couldn't bend a radio wave around the mountain. And so they learned about uh, Pearl Harbor eight days later at the grocery store, of all places. Well, that uh, <clears throat> this was, Mom died around Father's Day, and I was in Missouri taking care of some business items um, for her. And uh, it was it was Father's Day, and so I wrote my kids a story. And what I had just discovered in one of those roots moments was uh, I had traveled the whole country making big speeches about all kinds of things, and I thought these stories were my stories, but they weren't. My seven elders had stayed off stage and had held up the cue cards, and I read the cue cards. And so I told the, the kids the story of the cue cards. Um, let me tell you a bit about the seven elders. My 
great-grandmother Griggs was a, a, a neighbor, a relative of Jesse and Frank James, the, the Jesse James. Wait, wait, hold on. Griggs? No, Griggs. Wait. Okay, hold on. We may be discovering something here, Bob. You and I might have a common ancestor. Oh, uh, my, my mother's maiden name is Grigsby, and her family is from the Ozark Mountains in North Arkansas, Southern Missouri. Is that no. the part of the Ozarks you were? Absolutely. Oh, Bob, we might be relatives. All right, man, this is scary. Okay, so tell me more about the Griggs family. Well, (laughs) Grandma Griggs uh, married Mr. Griggs in the late 1800s. They had two children, and then he died. And uh, she had to have a husband, so she married this guy, and he turned out to be abusive. Mm. And uh, she needed her independence, and so she got a fifty-four forty Buffalo rifle. Hey, right on! And and persuaded him to leave. <laughs> so, <laughs> can you, for the audience, can you describe the size of that gun? Well, it, it had to have been as big as Grandma, because she was a, a little lady. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if "lady's" the right term. But she never remarried, um, and she kept her independence. And I realized that was one of the themes I had talked about forever. Hmm. Then my second elder was my Grandma Dale. Grandma Dale was an interesting country woman. She had the first um, subscription to a national magazine I ever knew about. The Life magazine came to her (laughs) mailbox every week, and she would sit and read it, and we would look at the pictures in it together. And on her 100th birthday, we had a big party, and I thanked her for giving me curiosity that stretched beyond the Ozarks. Oh, nice. My grandpa, Dale, um, died of a broken heart. Mm. He... um, He had 12 kids, but his favorite was Lauren. Lauren died in World War II when the USS Asheville sank in the South China Sea. And from that point forward, and Grandpa lived another 25 years or so, from that point forward, any time Lauren was mentioned, uh, Grandpa would burst into tears. Now, this this is very disconcerting for a little kid sitting at a dinner table when somebody casually mentions Lauren and all of a sudden your granddad is just sobbing uncontrollably. Well, it was like that grief stayed lodged in his throat. And so the very mention of Lauren would bring it out. And that made me realize that you have to deal with your losses. You have to actually face them and get beyond them. My dad, the the fourth of the elders, uh, dropped out of high school in the Depression because he had to help Grandpa feed all these kids, all these younger brothers and sisters. And because he had to drop out of school, he became obsessed with education. So when he went into World War II, we sold all of our cattle except for two little heifer calves. And the heifer calves were to provide an education, a herd that would provide an education for me and my brother. Now, take into account, I was four and my brother was four months old. So So you all were a rancher family. Yeah. 
farm farm. Oh man. And yeah. and we knew we knew that we were going to go to the university. And so um I did I, I got a PhD about the same time dad got his GED. Hmm. And well, that that taught me that even when you have to defer your goals and dreams, they can come true. Yeah. My my mom was an interesting person. Her dad had homesteaded in Kansas, and she had to go to boarding school to finish high school. So she went to school away from home. She uh, met dad, and they married, and um, she became a bookkeeper at, at the bank, and so she was always on top of financial things. And I remember that last year she was alive. She and I talked several times about uh, her investments and so forth, just to assure her she was going to be okay. Well, guess what? I thought we covered every one of them. When she died, there was one investment she had never mentioned to me. She kept her secrets to the end. And... You know, that that was one of those things of saying, all right, you can maintain your independence. Mm. You don't have to give everything up. Then Grandma Kingry, mom's parents, mom's grandma, or mom's mom, she was one of these take-no-prisoners Midwestern women. Boy, <laughs> she was rough and tough. We lived with them uh, while Dad was in the military. And I remember going to church with her one time, and she was teaching the entire adult group in the church. I thought that was unusual because in that part of Missouri, you know, the men were the bosses. But boy, nobody asked her a question that would confront her. And I remember later on when I took a Bible course, she was giving me some kind of big speech on the Bible. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, Grandma, you're absolutely wrong, but I'm not going to mention it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you enjoyed your life too much. <laughs> I did. Yeah. And, and you know, that the lesson in that was uh, tread lightly on people's important places. Yeah. And then Grandpa Kingry, um, he had been a Virginia coal miner, uh, an Oklahoma cowboy, and a, a, a homesteader in western Kansas. Pretty boring life, basically. <laughs> I, I was four when we lived with them, and he was 62. He was the most fun I ever had from an adult. Um, he taught me how to rope. Uh, he taught me how to play the banjo. He taught me all kinds of stuff. And he would play catch with me. And I, I just remember thinking about, here's, here's a guy whose life ended essentially in the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. And he came back to Missouri, uh, bought a farm, settled in, and retained his optimism. Mm. And that was that was helpful to me to see that life can really work over, but you don't have to give in and give up. So, you know, I had heard myself making these speeches about independence and having fun and cultivating curiosity and all that. But I just absolutely thought those were my speeches. And then driving back from Missouri in my car on, on Father's Day, I put it all together. And I realized that seven people had been holding up these cue cards 
And so I wrote the kids a Father's Day note about my cue card chorus. Yeah. And and that that sent me on some other things. But let me see what you want to explore. Yeah, there. no, I really like that a lot because, you know, obviously we're talking about metaphorically holding them up. You know, yes. <laughs> you didn't have yes. people in the back of the stage. But I think that's a really interesting visual of uh, how you're seeing this timeline, this legacy that's been in your yeah. family. Yes. Of these stories have been passed down, whether intentionally or not, you start to realize that, oh, yeah, this is what you are doing is carrying on their legacy, but in your own unique way. Yes. And that, I think, is really important because to carry on somebody else's legacy without considering how you're creating your own is not really creating a legacy at all. You're just yes, doing right. exactly what somebody else did. Yeah. But you had the freedom to do this. And it sounds like you have a lot of independence and, you know, ferocity <laughs> in a good way, which is, yeah. you know, which I, of course, appreciate that it's in your family. So, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely incredible. So tell us how that bridges into what you started doing for your kids and for your grandkids. Well, um, I, I decided to write the family story and uh, <clears throat> didn't have any idea what that was going to look like. So uh, I asked the kids, we have a son and a daughter, um, they were born when we were 33 and 31. So there's a long period of time there that they don't know a whole lot about. And, and so that became kind of the, the challenge to fill them in. Our son has made the comment a number of times that when he's made major decisions, there's been a theme song playing in the background. Mm. And so uh, I decided that I was going to write the family story uh, around songs. So uh, Carrie and I were both born in 1940. So I had a chapter for the 40s, one for the 50s, 60s, and so forth. And so the 40s, uh, the song for that uh, decade, was Alison Krauss's Down by the River to Pray oh, from yeah. Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, we grew up on a, a little river in Missouri, and uh, so that that made sense. Um, and then in 1950, the government had bought up our land and a lot of additional land around to create a training base, an Army training base. We were accidentally on the crossroads of the north-south, a major north-south railroad and east-west railroad. Okay, so where was this at? Which, Southwestern Missouri. Which yeah. base Which base are you talking about? Which oh, base? The Army base? Oh, Army base, Fort Crowder. Oh, okay. I was, I, yeah. And I knew that it had to be different because I graduated from Waynesville High School, Fort Leonard Wood. That's what I was yes, like, and that's, that's Missouri, right. yeah. So that's, that's more that's central, right. but yeah. Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt there. I, so I keep coming back to like, oh, Bob, I'm kind of baffled because I'm thinking so many clues are fitting here that Bob and I are probably share, we share a common ancestor. So anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, I'm making it all about me. Go ahead. Well, <laughs> they, they sold the, the land back and so in 1950. And so my song in night for the 50s was Who Says You Can't Go Home by John Bon Jovi and Jennifer Nettles. The 60s was kind of idyllic, so What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. Mm -hmm. The 70s, The River by Garth Brooks. You know, a dream yeah. is like a river, ever-changing as it goes. 
Um, and that's, of course, when I was just getting started uh, professionally. And then the 80s, The River of Dreams by Billy Joel. Uh, the 90s, The Power of Love by Huey Lewis. I listen to a lot of stuff, don't I? You sure do. Um, I'm impressed. And You Raise Me Up, the 2000s, Josh Groban, Time in a Bottle, uh, Jim Croce, and the 20s. Uh, 2020s, uh, Precious Memories, an old gospel hymn out of the mountains. And so... I love it. Uh, the, the kids had questions that I thought were interesting. And uh, Jared, when, when I uh, ask each of them privately uh, what they'd like to see written up if I wrote the family history, um, our, our son said, Talk about the roads not taken. Mm. And he knew I'd been offered a job in Switzerland teaching. And he also knew that the president of the institution, his marriage had blown up. And so everything he had planned to do got erased. And so we didn't go. And he was, Cass was wondering about that. Our daughter asked us how we taught them ethics which I thought was interesting because, you know, you begin to think about that and you realize that that's something that's more uh, caught than taught. Yeah. We didn't have any kind of uh, curriculum for that. And then uh, the question that, that I thought was most provocative, our daughter said, tell us how you and mom stayed together. You're so different. You know, what what kept you together? How did that work? And we've just celebrated 58 years, so I, I guess it's still working. Um, so in, in any event, that became then the story, and that became 150 pages. We, we brought it out the first time back in 16, I think, when our little granddaughter had just been born. And then we revised it this last year. Uh, after our grandson had been born. So, you know, it's it's been an unfolding kind of situation. Um, my, my college history prof said, history tells us how we got this way. And so that's how I, how I titled the, the story. I love that. So, yeah. you know, question I have for you here, because I imagine folks that are listening to this may be also thinking, okay, this is this is a great idea. I love this because so you have a few different elements in this, and maybe yeah. uh, I don't know if you've created a formula for this, but it seems like there is one, whether intentional or not. I mean, there's the songs that match, and they and they're not even songs from that decade, which I also That's think is right. really unique. It's That's songs right. that are important to you that you believe really help to capture your experience of that decade, which I think is really interesting. But it's this true. whole idea was prompted by your kids asking uh, really impactful questions, right? You know, yes. how did you teach us ethics? Uh, yeah. How did you and mom stay together so long? Right. These yeah. kinds of questions that these are life lessons. These are things yes. that they want to know because they're going to they're going to do things their own way. But they also want to know what their history is, as you were yeah. just saying. So how, yeah. so what is the formula of somebody? Like, how should somebody think about doing this for themselves? I mean, have you gotten that far in this or is it just all, you know, hey, well, this the, is what I was thinking the, of. The, and, the time formula was simple, decade by decade. Um, the, the the chapters aren't titled. The titles are actually the songs. Mm. And so the, the songs blend into the story. 
They talk about the mood of the decade. They talk about what was going on, um, you know, what what defined family in that kind of situation. So um, it, it was just a, a two-part story, me telling uh, my own memories and uh, getting uh, Carrie's memories down as well. Um, there were a lot of things in those first two decades they didn't know much about. You know, they simply hadn't lived through them. And so they they knew some, but not everything. So I'm not sure there's there's a formula. Um, the, the structure was the decade and the song, and the rest was story, the narrative. Yeah. yeah. It seems like you explore a lot, like, what was going on in the external environment. I see your futurist tendencies that come through in the way yeah. you probably wrote this story. What's yeah. going on in the external environment? How were you as a family functioning? Like what was important to you? You yeah. probably alluded to, I'm guessing, you know, how that compared or contrasted with what was going on in the day. But I, yeah. you know, I could, I could almost see how that, uh, that story, which you, you've actually, you, you thought it didn't show up in the attachment. So at some point I am going to read your story here. You have to send it to me again, but attach it this time, which I make that okay. mistake all the time. <laughs> so, you know, that's, I, I think that's, that's really incredible because this really le uh, leads to uh, your children, obviously having a firsthand account and talking to you and being able to read that. But it's also creating a model for them to do the same. But what's yes. great is that the more that carries on, the more your grandchildren and great-grandchildren will have this account, this first-person account of here's what was going on. I don't know how much DNA ancestry research stuff you've gotten into, but yeah. my mom is really big into that. I've, I'm all very curious. History is something I love a whole lot. And so I want to know where did, where did my family come from? Uh, and it is really hard. You have to work really hard to find out about your relatives, you know, when you start going back 100, 150 years, yes. because so much was poorly documented, names were misspelled on the census. Yeah. Uh, there were, you know, like my family that came over from Ireland, a lot of them didn't want their past following them, right? Yes. Yeah. You know, so, or names were changed so that they weren't being confused with Irish, right? Or yes. Scottish, you know, like the Scottish didn't want to be confused. I mean, it's just all this weird stuff that you start to uncover and you think, well, who were these people? And what you're doing is you're creating it now to say, this is who I am. Yes. So generations down the road, people are going to be able to look back and say, great, great, great grandpa, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is the story. This is the tradition he started. That's, that's powerful. Well, uh, yes, it is. And uh, when when we gave we, we gave the story as a Christmas gift one year, and uh, our son immediately sent an email, and he said, um, this is terrific. He said, my children will have a story uh, to tell, a story to understand. And I, he, he, by the way, as you know, is a futurist as mm -hmm. well. And... Um, he was interviewed on NPR one time 10, 12, 15 years ago, and he said, they asked him uh, how he got to be a futurist, and he said, it's the family business. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Maybe my kids will say that one day. <laughs> my oldest says, Dad, when I, well, he said this when he was in second grade. He said, when I grow up, 
I want to be a futurist like you. And I said, like, oh, that's great. Why is that? He goes, so I can have a beard and a bald head. And I thought, <laughs> yeah, you know, we'll start with that. Those are both important. <laughs> yes, son. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll take what I can get. But oh, that's incredible. It really is. So, uh, Bob, let's let's step out here for a second and talk about why storytelling and documenting is so important, especially in today's day and age. Why do you think, I mean, obviously there's the personal reasons for doing it, but why should other people take the time to do something similar to, uh, to document or to create for the generations to come? How does that fit into the larger idea of the way we need to be thinking about the future? I mean, I have yeah. my ideas, but I want you to share what, you, what you're thinking here. Well, I, you know, I think everybody has a story to tell, and I think most of us tell the story. And one of the things I've become aware of, uh, Jared, is the shape of stories. Some stories are eye-shaped, straight line, move quickly, no texture, no tension, just the facts. You mm -hmm. know, the the old um, dragnet <laughs> show back in the 60s and 70s, Jack Webb would, would look at this person he was questioning and say, just the facts, man. That's an I-shaped story. Yeah. Some stories are O-shaped. Um, and uh, I remember our, our little granddaughter told us she wanted to tell stories. And so she took us in the living room and we sat down and she got up in front of us and spread out her arms and she said once upon a time and then she would spin this yarn and then at the end she would say and they all lived happily ever after no loose ends perfect perfect o-shaped story no no drama right uh, or very little but futurists tell c-shaped stories that that have a beginning have a, an arc a texture to them some tension but they don't tie them up. They end them usually with a question like, mm. you know, uh, now, now what? What's next? What, what's going to happen now? And uh, I, I, my background is theology, and so the parables of Jesus make uh, lots of sense to me, but I notice how often they don't tie up the loose ends. Right. You know, it's, it's the, the good Samaritan, uh, who's the neighbor? You know, yeah. that, that kind of thing. And it draws people in to engage. And that that seems to me to be um, something that we can all teach ourselves. Uh, you know, don't limit yourself to just one kind of story. Yeah. yeah. Even the C-shaped stories, you know, don't, don't limit there. There may be stories that are simple enough. You can tell them in an I form and, and they're taken care of. Yeah. Um, so... That that's one of the things, and and one of the things I'm noticing right now, Jared, is um, what what I just described there, the shape of stories. That's a personal uh, way of looking at stories. There are cultural ways of looking at stories too. Uh, there's the mature and morph kind of story. That's slow moving. Usually comes out of Eastern cultures where there's a lot of history. And you know they can be they can be patient with things. Uh, I, I raise bonsai trees, and I found out when I started raising bonsais that that some Japanese families pass them down for 500 years. What? 
Yes. Wow. That's part of the legacy of the family, you know, grandpa and grandma's bonsai. Well, there's another kind of uh, story. When when the American West started opening, um, the challenge response story was was there. You know, the West was opening up. Everything was an adventure. It was romantic. Um, and there was even a, a, a historian out of the University of Wisconsin, a guy named Turner, who developed the frontier thesis and trained, as it turned out, about 60% of all the, the historians in America before he died in the 1930s. Well, you know, the, the challenge response, the, the untamed West, you know, the, the whole thing that, uh, that we look at and wonder how it came about. And, you know, I think about my, my grandfathers. They were both Oklahoma cowboys mm-hmm. on the same ranch. Um, they, they worked on a ranch where um, the owner was German. And so Grandpa Dale named my dad Ivan, and that worked out really well until World War II. Right, I imagine so. <laughs> I, Ivan Adolf didn't go, and, and so Dad... Hold on, his changed. middle name was Adolf? Adolf. Oh, and, no, poor guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And then Grandpa Kingery went on and, and homesteaded and lived in a sod house, you know, that, that kind of thing. So there were so, so, so many challenges to the frontier. But the, the swing vote was the American Civil War. Mm-hmm. When it was fought, the, the narrative became win or lose. And, uh, you know, Lincoln didn't crush the South. He was pretty humane. And so the Jim Crow laws and all those kind of things came about. And the oddity is we are in a win-lose era right mm-hmm. now. Uh, you know, there's so many lines in the sand. And if if I had uh, some druthers as a futurist, I would want to get back to the challenge response possibility to open up options and yeah. explore uh differences yeah well options is what we always is what we should be looking for exactly but so much the attention is on outrage yeah which is not which is not solution focused it's you know blame focused it's uh i mean the narrative wars today are just insane i mean obviously we're talking about the power of stories on a personal level and then on a macro level well every narrative it's a story so we're all being told what we need to believe whose side we should be on, what all of this stuff means, and here are the facts. We can't even trust the facts because clearly that's, you know, the media has lost, uh, I mean, leadership at every level has just gone down the tubes. It doesn't mean that every single leader is bad. It just means that in general, there is such a low bar and society has lost faith in those who are supposed to be giving us that foundation so that we can all move forward together. Yeah. We've just become overwhelmed and isolated, and uh, we've otherized everybody on all yes. sides of these culture wars and everything else. It's like, oh, you know, well, you were this and you were that. Or, no, no, well, this guy's, you know, it's just how do we – I think it's a real dangerous point in time, honestly. 
I do too, because I, I, I think too many people are accepting as fact uh, what the narrative is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that traps you because you don't see options. You don't see a way out. It, it, it's just there. Yeah. And, and it overwhelms. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So how what have you seen throughout your life, Bob, that looks similar to the time period that we're in right now? I mean, you know, we talk about today's day and age and it's tumultuous and there's a lot of change going on. But honestly, if you look back at history, I mean, the 60s, that was pretty revolutionary. Like that was a stark shift from the direction that the country was on and all kinds of change started flooding in, you know, and there's, you know, all the different things going. I, I mean, that what a fascinating time. And also, you know, if there ever was a time to think, hey, you know, the things are falling apart. You know, you're constantly living in, under this, you know, fear of nuclear war. You had the civil rights movement, which is exciting. So a lot of change was taking place there, but it came with a lot of violence, you know, sadly, you know, against those who were you know, like, uh, you know, Martin Luther King. And you see the footage that uh, stuff was really, really uh, rough to see. Then the assassinations, so many assassinations of prominent leaders and voices of the time. The Vietnam War. I mean, gosh, what else? There, It was just it was a, a massive shift. How does that compare to where we are today? Or are they just not even in the same same realm? Well, I, I think there are a lot of parallels, but um, I, my, my sense is we're in a more dangerous time. Um, it's, it's fragile, so fragile. Um, you know, there was, there was one of um, the government leaders who said the other day that um, uh, if, if your candidate didn't win, and you were a gun owner, you better go buy up all the ammunition you can get. Well, that's that's a war, you know, yeah. uh, and that that's tough to deal with. Good luck finding any. You can't find ammunition today <laughs> unless you're shooting twenty two, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so. Well, but, I haven't been looking, but oh, I'll, well, I'll, I'll take that as a cautionary tale. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. That is. I mean, but but at the same time. That's a scare tactic that's been used for decades. Yeah. You know, it's a scare yeah. tactic. Now, does it mean that it's not legit? No, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I, I agree um, that when you combine all the things that are going on today, COVID, quarantine, the economic situation for a number of Americans, uh, the just the polarization just the nastiness on both sides of the aisle, uh, you know, what's going on um, around like debates and uh, questions about race and equity and equality, all of that, you know, these, these highly contentious positions that are not interested for the most part, again, what the media is highlighting. So when I say for the most part, I'm talking about what's being highlighted to us in the media, social media, mainstream media, both what they're hyper-focusing on are the people that don't want real solutions. They just want to tear down and like point fingers and blame. And this comes from both sides of, of the arguments. But I think that, number one, is not a, a, a correct representation of the vast majority of people. Yeah. I, I have yet to interact with somebody who is extreme. Yeah. I Have you? Yeah. I, you know, may, maybe it's just because we're, we're highly selective of the people that we're around, but... I meet a lot of people and talk to a lot of people. I've yet to meet one of these crazy extremists on one side or the other 
that always gets highlighted in the media. And then it leads us to believe, oh, everybody that thinks this must be like that. And that's just yeah. false. That's not true. And, yeah. But then all of a sudden it's like, well, great. Well, now you're put into this position because of carelessness and negligence uh, and just years and years and years of, of uh, partisan politics and divides that, you know, people start doing really stupid things and it has really bad consequences. Well, I, 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 I agree. Um, and it makes me wonder, you know, how do you plant hope in a world that's so divided and so fragmented? Um, when, when I get off the phone here, I'm going to do an interview with a guy whose job is to help churches find pastors. And uh, he wants to talk a little bit about the interim or the transitional pastor. What, what kind of challenges do they face right now? Mm. You know, and, and that's got me thinking, you know, where, where is the hope in a time that feels so hopeless at points? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the, the last place we need to look for hope is going to be in the media. And by the media, I mean all of it, social media mainstream yeah. media because they're not incentivized for hope i think people no. have to all i beat this drum all the time i know you'd know this we talked about this a lot in the foresight academies that yeah. you have to look at the incentives yeah. there's no incentive to create hope none yeah. not from the media so what do we do we have to look for it in each other have actual human conversations right yeah. Yeah. you know people i i definitely believe in the in the goodness of people yes there are awful people out there for sure we all have the possibility the tendency to be that way but I tend to, I honestly believe just in my own experience that, you know, people will help each other out if they need yeah. help. Yeah. And, but that starts by actually connecting and having real dialogue, you know, Yes. and yes. walking away from just all the partisan theater that yeah. we've been inundated with. Uh, otherwise, we are going to create a situation that has consequences that clearly people are not thinking all the way through. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah um, your story is 150 pages, but I would imagine there's another 150 that are going to go in there before your time is done, my friend. You know, yeah. you got you got some more writing to do. <laughs> you know, well, I may hand it off uh, to my to my kids. I mean, that's the intent there. But you're right; it's an ongoing story. Yeah, and, and you know, the last chapter, last page is not written. Um, in fact, it's probably not even imagined at this point. Yeah. You know, think about the questions we've just been talking about here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, it. I, another powerful thing about you doing that too, Bob, that I, I find this to be really powerful, is on a on a in the macro sense, we are being. Uh, segmented by what people believe our likes, our beliefs, our ideas are, and they're and none of them are that black and white. You know, yeah. I I have beliefs and ideas that would be considered on one side of an aisle, and then beliefs and ideas that would be considered on another. It's a mix match. That's most most people. Yeah, yeah. And but that problem is also making it easy for folks to write off somebody who they believe is going to have a differing opinion than them right who yeah. they believe is oh well that person they vote this way clearly they're you know 
they're a racist, right? If they vote for Trump, they're a racist. If they vote for Biden, they're a socialist. It's just these easy narratives that makes it so easy for you to not even engage. Like, well, I already know the answers to all their questions, or I already know, you know, how they're going to answer, so I'm not going to spend time to do that. What, what essentially is happening there is that we are telling the world, if we let that happen, that uh, this is who they were, this is what they believed, nothing more to see here. By you writing your own stories saying, the world may tell you that I would believe this, yeah. but it's not true. Yeah. If you really want to know. Here's, here's what it is, I believe. And that comes to the other part of this. A lot of people don't really want to know. It's so much easier for them to just put you in a box. Yeah. So for those who are actually serious about creating the future, who are leaving a you know, creating a legacy that's worth leaving, do what Bob does, right? Do it your <laughs> own way, you know? Yeah. What would Bob do? I know that's sacrilege for a lot of people that grew up in the, uh, you know, the 80s and 90s with the WWJD bracelets. I'm going to go ahead and create one for you, Bob. You know, that way you can, you know, separate yourself and say, look, I didn't create that. <laughs> Jared created that for me. But I think it's a, I, you know, in full, in, in all seriousness, the idea of writing your own story, you know, we talk about that metaphorically as this is the future, right? You are writing your own story every single day, but you, Bob, are literally writing your own story and leaving it for those who come behind you. And I think that has got so much power. There's so much more here that, um, you know that we haven't covered on, but uh, yeah. I, I think it's 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 an area that is worth exploring more. Maybe that needs to be your next book because <laughs> I did not mention this in the beginning. But Bob, how many books have you written? I think or twenty-eight. Twenty-eight, right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> oh man, I'm so outclassed here. Why are you hanging out with me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's well, impressive. Well, several of those books are extremely. Personal, like for instance, um, I did a bone marrow transplant with my brother, and his sons were very young, and they weren't involved. They they live in uh, Colorado, and we did the bone marrow transplant in Seattle. So I wrote the story "Brother Found" mm -hmm. uh, for them, um, and uh, he he was a poet, a cowboy poet. And so I blended his poetry in, uh, photographs of him and that kind of thing. And uh, it, it's, it's been interesting to get their reaction. Uh, Jared, I, I tell you, um, talking about kind of getting stuck sometimes um, in the conversation, there, there's a coaching question, the awe question, A-W-E, and what else? Mm -hmm. And if you can ask that and really want to know, if you can ask it without attitude, if you can ask it with curiosity, it usually disarms people and they will go ahead and add whatever it is they've been sort of sitting on, protecting. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a that's a good point because you're it's that's that C-shaped story, right? Yeah. It you're is. Leaving it, it's open ended. It you know, is. It doesn't finish. It's and what else? Yeah. You know, but <laughs> I think right. that should be the name of, of the book you write about how to create and write a story to leave for your children. I'm trying to push you in this direction. So we have you back on the show. Like, you know, of course, with, you know, as prolific as you are, it could be two months from now. You're like, well, I've written the manual and I've included <laughs> examples of my own way of doing this. And here it is. It's out in the world now. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I think that's excellent. I really do. Um, well, we, yeah. Carrie and I live uh, in a retirement village uh, here in uh, Richmond. 500 people live here. And I did um, a lecture presentation 
on how to write a family story. And it was interesting. We had a big crowd, a uh, hundred probably or more. Um, everybody was interested, but when it came down to it, nobody talked to me about being ready. Hmm. Um, so I don't know. You know, it, It's kind of like springtime. You plant a seed and you see if it's going to sprout. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that's... That's excellent. That's that's a good that's a good way to end end the show. I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is there is there Bob? One thing I always want to find out: if folks want to connect with you, reach out to you, find out more about you. How's, what's the best way for them to do that? And we'll put this information in the show notes as well. But sometimes folks are just listening and can just write this down. So, what are the ways for them to connect with you? Uh, the easiest way is bobdale40 at yahoo.com. That's right, Yahoo. We got to get you a new email address: bobdale40 uh-huh. at yahoo.com. That's right. By the way, there to, to close out, uh, I, I found a quote the other day by Maya Angelou. You remember she was abused and mm-hmm. didn't speak for several years? And here's what she said. There's no agony like the bearing of an untold story inside you. Ooh, man, that is good. So when, when she finally be, became able to speak, she wrote. <laughs> wow, that is powerful. You're right. That is the way to end the show. Will you read that quote again? There's no agony like the bearing of an untold story inside you. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Bob, I always enjoy our conversations, my friend. I appreciate you uh, doing this and talking about uh, the legacy you're creating and sharing some wisdom with the rest of us on how we might do the same. So we may have to have a follow-up on this once you create that manual. Glad to. Glad to. Anytime, man. Yeah, perfect. All right, Bob. Thank you so much, my friend. Hang in there. See you later. All right, everybody, that is it for today's show. Again, thank you so much for being here. And if you have not subscribed, make sure you do that before you uh, turn this episode off. And then also visit us at thenewfuturist.com. You can find out more about our work, uh, a lot of the free resources that we have. And of course, if you want to take your strategic thinking, your decision-making, or increase that skill set uh, to drive real innovation and create the future, then you'll definitely want to check out the Foresight Academy. And you can find that on our website at thenewfuturist.com under courses, but you can also find that at theforesightacademy.com. Again, that's theforesightacademy.com. And this is something we're doing in partnership with the University of Tennessee, where uh, folks that go through this program and they complete it, are uh, issued a certificate in strategic foresight from the Haslam College of Business at the University of Tennessee. So again, check us out at thenewfuturist.com, but also if you're interested in, uh, in the Foresight Academy and getting your certificate in strategic foresight, then definitely check us out at theforesightacademy.com. As always, uh, feel free to reach out to us directly. Let us know what you think. If you've got some ideas or comments or things that you want to see us uh, or hear us talk about, we want to hear from you. We want to know. So make sure that you comment on the blog and, uh, and leave us a note. All right. Thanks again, everybody. See you soon.